back to Single Cell Science. I'm Louise Seeker. And I am Sarah Jeckel. Today we are going to talk on a high level about how to process samples for single cell or single nuclei RNA sequencing in the lab. We usually begin with our samples and the first question is, um, which kind of samples can I use for a single cell RNA experiment? Yeah, so uh, in general, you can sequence anything uh, that is a cell or even nuclei. So uh, depending on what you're interested, the key point about is is that it needs to be a single cell suspension. So you can isolate cells from a mouse brain, from a liver, from the skin, from whatever tissue you want to, and then dissociate it and then load it into your uh, experiment, depending on what you are doing. But also, uh, you can use cells that are grown in culture, obviously. You need can dissociate them or even organoids grown in culture. So anything that is... Um, That, that is a cell and it also needs to be viable in order to get uh, a good results because when you load uh, dead cells, um, the results are actually going to be quite bad. But also um, what we have been actually using a lot because we, we're working, both of us, we are working with uh, post-mortem human brain tissue and um, there uh, the possibility to get viable, healthy cells um, are not uh, very much available, obviously. So we have started, and not only us, a lot of other people have actually started to use single nuclei uh, to do that, which uh, is also going to give good results. How would you assess the viability of your cells? So most of the people are using the very standard method. They use uh, a dry pen blue staining, as we do in cell culture, and count the cells that are not uh, dry pen blue positive. Uh, but on the other hand, you can use a modern flow cytometry methods uh, and use a live or dead cell stain and assess cell viability there. And what kind of uh, viability are we aiming for when we are working with cells? Well, I think the spread is very wide, um, but obviously you want to have a viability as high as possible. Um, some people say 95% of cell viability. Other people uh, say 80% of cell viability. It actually depends, right? I mean, when you're working with cells from cell culture, the chances that you're going to have 95% viability are very high. So you should aim for that. But on the other side, when you isolate cells from a tissue and even probably sort the cells, uh, you might not be getting a 95% cell viability. So you could be happy with li a little bit lower. But in general, I wouldn't go, I personally wouldn't load anything that is less than 80% cell viability. I think there's really quite a lot of measurement error in there and you just have to establish a value within your lab you're happy with that produce good results. The good thing about using nuclei is actually that you don't need to be bothered about cell viability because they're all dead. Yeah, they're all dead. So what do you think? Are there advantages and disadvantages to working with nuclei? Except for like that and that you can use archived frozen tissue. I think this is actually the key point. If I would be able to do cells, I would do cells. But in our case, it's just not possible. So the nuclei is the best uh, alternative. And as you already mentioned, you have the advantage of using archived tissue. So you can plan your experiment a lot longer in advance than 
for example, as in comparison to waiting for a pup to be born or waiting for a post-mortem to happen. Um, and there are quite some papers out at the moment already that uh, try to compare single cells with single nuclei and see if the results are similar. And of course, you get a lot more reads when using a single cell, but the basic biological features are actually the same. So at least there are no disadvantages in using single nuclei. So I think maybe if you are interested in a very niche kind of cell and you want to sort first before you do any kind of single cell analysis, you might be better like working with cells as well because um, you could fact sort them more easily because they are viable and you probably have less, less unspecific binding. So we do sort nuclei as well, but it's quite tricky because they are, well, they are not viable anymore. So I think... It might be an advantage of um, working with cells as well. But on the other hand, you have the problem that they are viable, so they can change their gene expression. So this is something a nucleus would not do anymore. There are a lot of other labs are actually also working on that point. Like how do you isolate your sample in order to prevent that transcriptomy changes are happening during the isolation procedure because when you use an enzymatic digestion for example this can take up to an hour and the third cells are incubated at 37 degrees so there's a lot of um, reaction towards the cell isolation itself yes it's amazing that it still works yeah absolutely So now that we have our single cell or single nuclei suspension, uh, we need to do the uh, single cell experiment uh, itself, like the real experiment. So how do we do that? So what we really want to do is we want to capture mRNA, so messenger RNA. And we have one advantage that the messenger RNA is always poorly adenylated. That means we have loads of adenosine bases at the end of the uh, messenger RNA molecule, and we can use that with a poly T tail to capture mRNAs. So this is one process of really restricting it to messenger RNA. Not all methods are doing this. No, but let's say 95% of the methods, there are very few methods that actually capture other RNAs as well, non-polyadenylated RNAs as well, but most of them do. Yes, and there are loads of methods out there, and I think we are going to discuss them in single episodes in the future. But just to mention a few, so just in very basic terms, there's the option to generate a physical barrier between your cells, which could be, for example, a well in a 96-well plate or a 384-well plate. So you would sort the cells into single wells. Yeah, and then you'd capture it and do your library preparation on each cell individually. This means if you have 384 cells, you have to do 384 library preps. Then another possibility is to use droplet-based methods where a cell or a nucleus is captured in a droplet together with a bead. And the beads contain the capture probes with the poly T-tails and capture the mRNA. And they also include a barcode that is unique for each of those beats. And then after you've done the capturing of the mRNA, you transcribe them into cDNA, and all the transcribed cDNAs will have that unique code for each beat 
in their sequence. So after that, you can pull them together and do the library prep together for each sample. So you're always talking about a library prep. What do you mean by library? Because to be fair, when I started uh, doing this experiments and everyone talked about a library, I actually had no idea what it is. I felt the same way, really. I just had always books for in front of my eyes. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes books. books. So what do we mean by library? I, I think a good definition would be it is a cDNA product that is ready for sequencing, so which can go on, an, for, for example, on an Illumina sequencer. So for the, to do that, you need to meet specific requirements. For example, it does have to have a specific length so you have to fragment cDNA so that it's not too long because Illumina sequences can only work with a specific cDNA length. And obviously, they need to be able to detect the product somehow. So you need to have sequences that can bind to the flow cell. And you need to have specific primers for actually amplifying the product as well. So what do we do with the library prep? We have a cDNA, so we first we transcribe mRNA into cDNA, and then we amplify the cDNA, and we have to bring the cDNA to a specific length for the Illumina sequencers to actually be able to sequence the product, and you need to insert indexing primers so you know which, which sequence uh, comes from which sample. And you also need to insert um, sequencing adapters because sequencing exactly. also were, always works with primers too. And these primers are obviously not part of the mRNA itself. So you need to insert it in, into your fragment. And afterwards, the last step is very important because um, you need to amplify your library in order to get enough uh, molecules in order to send it for sequencing. But first of all, I wanted to say that... Um, This uh, whole library preparation and library amplification uh, step sounds very complicated, but luckily most of the people are actually using kits from a company, uh, so you don't need to do it yourself. Like these kits usually uh, are make it very easy to do the library amplification, the library prep. Uh, it's coming with, in a box where you have all your enzymes and everything you need with a very specified protocol. So that, first of all, it's very easy for you to do, but also it makes it, makes it very reproducible so that your variability between the different samples is not too high. It's very costly, but it's actually very good. When you have your libraries, what do you do then? Do you send any sample off or do you do some quality controls first? So I think uh, you have done a lot more quality control recently than I did. So uh, first of all, why do we do quality control and how do we do quality control? So, well, first of all, sequencing is still a major uh, cost factor in a single cell RNA sequencing experiment. So sequencing is as expensive as using one of the most used kits for each sample. And therefore, if you have very poor libraries, you probably don't want to send them off for sequencing. So we usually um, determine quality by running each sample on a bioanalyzer. And the bioanalyzer gives us the concentration, but also the mean fragment lengths and just a trace to look if the base pair length is within the expected range to send it off for sequencing, actually. 
when would you not send it off? So I wouldn't send it off if either the concentration was really, really very low or I see a lot of peaks outside that range where I want to see a curve. What is this range? So we look for a mean that is between 400 and 500 base pairs and not um, huge peaks outside that main curve. So sometimes you see little peaks for primer dimers. We tend to ignore those if they're small. But if you see really huge peaks outside that range, that this may cause problems. So and then the other reason why we use a bioanalyzer is that if you want to send off your samples for sequencing and you want to pool different samples together so they, that they are run in the same lane, which you can do because you use unique indexing primers during the library prep, so you can pool different samples together and you still will be able to tell which, which sequence comes from which sample which is really cool and it reduces costs a lot. So what we usually do is we pool 10 samples together and then completely randomly, by the way, we have not spoken about randomization yet, but we should. So we, we pool them completely randomly together, 10 samples in one pool, and then we run each pool on two different lanes to get the, um, the desired sequencing depth for each cell, for each sample and cell. Yeah, so um, the pooling also very much depends on like how many samples you pool depends on what type of sequencing you use. So as you mentioned already, you want to have a specified sequencing depth per cell. And each flow cell in the sequencer gives you a different number of reads. And depending on how high this is, you can load that many samples in order to get around 50,000 reads per cell. That's about what we're aiming for. So you mean how many samples you can load is actually really much depending on the sequencer you use because each sequencer has different kinds of flow cells and different numbers of reads it can generate. And that also means that if you have very little of one sample in that pool and a lot of the next sample, you will get a lot more reads of the second sample, which we don't want. We want to have actually as many reads of each of the samples we put in. So this is why you should pool them equimolar. Exactly. And this is, again, why we do the bioanalyzer measurements. So we want to know the molarity of each one of the samples. And we can calculate that using the concentration and the mean base pair length. So we use that to calculate the molarity. And then we dilute our samples before pooling them to an equimolar concentration. We aim for getting as many reads for one sample as for the next one. Now, it almost seems that the practical part of the single cell experiment is over. Uh, because after the cells have been loaded and the sequencing, uh, you have prepared your libraries and you send it off for sequencing, the bioinformatic analysis starts. What do you think? How long did it take us to generate those libraries until now? I mean, it's depending on the number of samples, obviously, but how long does the protocol take? Well, I think it depends, again, on the type of single cell sequencing you're doing. But on average, I would say also it depends on your sample. How long does it take you to isolate cells? Obviously, when you have a monolayer of cells from cell culture, you are a lot faster than when you have a health, uh, a living mouse that you need to isolate cells out from. But all in all, I would say it's a two days of work. 
Yeah, about two to three days, just to give a ballpark. It's not like weeks and weeks. So I did an experiment with with you, and we processed 70 samples within two weeks. And this is doable. And you actually process quite a lot more samples at some point as well. So it is doable actually to scale that up quite a lot. And um, actually, we want to be actually quite fast in processing those cells in the lab if possible. So when working with archived samples and not, for example, with cultured samples where you have to stick to time points, obviously you have to do this then. But if you work like us with archived samples, you can actually try to process them quite quickly because um, there's something we call batch effect. So samples that are processed very far apart in time might actually produce different results and might not be as comparable. This is also one thing to consider before you start the experiment. It's actually quite important to randomize samples. So if you have different conditions, for example, a treatment and a control group, you don't want to run those different conditions in different batches. So for example, on different 384 well plates, if you do this, or on different 10x chips or something like that. So you want to mix them. So you will not confound the chip or the plate with the condition. This part is actually very interesting because um, the first thing in cell RNA sequencing papers, they just didn't consider this. So a lot of the results that they have found is actually due to their batch because they have processed their treatment and their uh, control samples in a different way. Uh, but now it's very important. Uh, the randomization is, is, has become very important in the last years. And I think even when you publish a paper doing single cell RNA sequencing, the, the editors or the reviewers are specifically looking for that. Okay, so this is really important. And we randomize our sequencing pools as well. We do this again completely randomly. So we use 10x. So we wouldn't sequence all the eight samples we ran on one 10x chip in the same sequencing lane. So we mix them up completely randomly again to allocate them to uh, sequencing pools to reduce batch effects. Okay, this is it from our side today. Next time we are going to talk on a high level uh, about the bioinformatic analysis of single cell or single nuclei RNA-seq data. Thank you for listening and if you like what we are doing then please subscribe or like us. And if you're excited to learn more about single cell RNA sequencing, don't forget to tune in in our next episode. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.